1: As we come before God in prayer, we turn to his word uh, again and again throughout the service. And uh, we turn now to prepare to confess our sins. And In in Isaiah 64, we have a well-known verse uh, that receives lots of attention, uh, but needs constant uh, meditation. Isaiah 64, 6, hear God's word. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away, as far the reading of God's word. This verse is familiar enough that it loses much of the shock contained in it. Our righteousnesses are filthy, Uh, not the sin that we know to be sin, but the things that we commend ourselves for doing well. Our righteousnesses are are packed with filth in God's eyes. We have to learn to repent of our sins, yes, but we also need to repent of our supposed virtues, of what we think we're doing well. Maybe we're slapping ourselves on the back for it or something else, but we must be found in Christ, not in our own righteousness, which we must count as trash. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let's kneel if you're able, and I will pray our prayer of confession. word and read the sermon text, 1 Samuel 29. Once again, hear God's inerrant word as we read. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him, since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as Yahweh lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army is good in my sight." For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in me, your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning, to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Tried something new this week in the bulletin outline. If you uh, take a look there near the back of the bulletin, uh, you'll see I uh, kind of gave you what I tend to do when I prepare a sermon uh, and what I was taught in seminary at one point. And that is uh, to start with a one-sentence summary of the text. So you have the text theme there, and the Philistines condemn and release David, even though Achish says he is righteous, and God used that to rescue David. And then, uh, once you have that summary down, then the idea is to translate that to, a, to the sermon theme, and often it's the same thing. Uh, usually in this kind of setting, that's, that would just be a report of the text, though, so how do you apply that in a sermon is the idea, right? So uh, you come to the gospel point next. How does that relate to the gospel? Well, Israel condemned Jesus, though he was righteous, and God used this to save us. And we'll see several ways in which David, again, is like uh, Jesus today, a type of Jesus. And the sermon theme uh, that I'll be uh, focusing on towards the end is that God uses surprising ways to support us and to sustain us. And that's what he's doing for David in this text, and that's what he does uh, for us. So that's, that's, in a nutshell, what the message will be today. Uh, but let's uh, dive a bit deeper here. The story so far is this. Saul has been pursuing David. Uh, David goes to the Philistines to escape. The Philistines gather to fight Israel, and David's drafted. But then, in this chapter, he's released. And that's this chapter. And then David goes home. And as David's going home, Saul is going to the witch, uh, which we read last, uh, last time. So that's uh, the story so far. And we have uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter another one of those things that I call a chiasm. Not that I call it that, I call it the sandwich theory, right? You got bun on top and, and bottom, and then two layers in the middle and the meat in the, in the middle. So, and the meat in the middle is usually the, the main point. So the first few verses and the last few verses, we have the Philistines gathering with David and then David leaving them. So that's kind of the first two parallel points. And then the next layer in, you have the Philistines objecting to David, and towards the end, you have David objecting to Akish, both making a protest. And then one more layer in, you have Akish trying to vindicate David to the Philistines, but then Akish, on the other side of the, the middle, Akish dismisses David. Uh, so you've got Akish doing two things. And then in the middle, the middle is verses 4 and 5, where you have the Philistines pointing to David, describing him to Akish, uh, And the way they describe him really is a type of Christ. And we'll uh, look at that further as we go. So first, the first uh, outer layers, David among the Gentiles, the Philistines. He's gathering with them. This is a tight place David is in. He's being asked to fight against Israel. And all along the way, he's being careful not to do that. Remember that from uh, chapter 27, when he's uh, raiding uh, Amalekites instead of Israelites. David has said he will not lift his hand against God's anointed. He's made extra special, taken extra special care never to harm Saul, even when he could. So he certainly isn't going to uh, have his men fight against Israelites at this point. And God gets David out of this. He provides a way out. Uh, God uh, puts us in tight spots like this, sometimes on purpose, either to teach us something uh, that we did to get ourselves there or just generally to test and build our faith. Uh, God gets Israel, uh, David, out of this tight spot. So that's the outermost layer, the gathering and the leaving. The next layer in, you have the objections. They're gathering at Aphek. David is reviewed by the other Philistines. Uh, Aphek, by the way, is where Israel lost the ark back in chapter 4. Uh, so you have kind of a hint that there's another defeat coming. Uh, so that's what's going on there. The Philistines object to David, and probably with a little bit of racial profiling, we'd call it, right? Hey, what's this? what are these Hebrews doing here? We're going to fight the Hebrews. Why do we have Hebrews fighting with us? That's not going to work. Uh, they make this objection. You think it's safe to expect Hebrews to fight other Hebrews? Isn't he going to turn on us and help his own? Most likely. Send him away. And so they want David to get out of here. Don't have him anywhere near. Send him home. And just a brief application on this in a spiritual sense for us. This is going to happen to us. Out there in the world, there will be times when you and your Jesus are not wanted. Get him out of here. This is not the time to deal with that kind of thing. And that, we need to be prepared for that. That's going to happen. We just looked at it in the prayer of the church, the Pakistani Christians are horribly treated these days. That uh, prayer request I found quite striking today at the bottom of that list. This man who was reading his Bible in the city park and a group of Muslims came by and told on him and he was arrested and spent the next two months in jail being uh, tortured into a confession uh, of blasphemy. That kind of thing happens and we need to remember that. And remember that, it's, uh, that there's that kind of enmity against uh, Christ and his followers that will come. So the Philistines have that kind of enmity at this point. What, what is this guy doing here? We don't want him. So Akish, verse 4, uh, he, he um, seeks to vindicate David. And at this point, you have to realize Akish is just really gullible. And the Philistines are being smart. And they know what's going on. Uh, Akish says, he's been with me for years. And I haven't seen him do anything wrong the whole time. Well, no, he's been in this city far to the south, raiding people, telling you he was raiding Israelites, but he was raiding your own people. And that's what David has been doing the whole time. So the Philistine lords are being smart at this point because I'm thoroughly convinced that David would have done as the Philistines feared. He would not seek to harm Saul, the Lord's anointed, If Saul dies in this battle, David would have had a hand in his death if he actually attacked uh, as the Philistines wanted, expected. No, David's not going to attack the people over whom he's been anointed king. No way. Uh, You have a hint of that where uh, David says, To this day, uh, it's verse 8. What have I done? He protests to Achish. To this day, what have you found in your servant? I think there's a bit of an implication there that... uh, after this day, no longer. Hopefully I can get into the battle and fight against you. And, and this day you're going to find out actually what's going on. So instead of telling Akish the truth about his heart and loyalty to Israel, that would result in his death, right? He sees instead an opportunity here to do some serious damage to the Philistines to save Israel from losing this battle and to get himself out of this jam that he's in. That, so that seems very likely that that was David's plan. So verse 8, why does David object then? He, that's exactly what he wants to do is get into the battle. Well, I think he's genuinely trying to stay in the fight to help Israel against this massive army that he sees all around him. Or if, if not that, then he's, just, he's seeing there's no chance of staying in the fight and now he has to kind of appear eager to fight against Israel so the Philistines won't kill him right there. So he's, maybe he's being shrewd, but I, I think he's actually trying to get into the fight, most likely. Uh, verse 8, again, he's, he's being careful how he says things, right? He says he wants to go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. Well, who is he referring to? Who are the enemies of my lord, the king? Who is David's king, earthly king right now? It's really Saul, and he's okay with that. He said several times, I'm not going to touch the lord's anointed. That's my king. But Akish thinks he's talking about himself. <laughs> so once again, David's being crafty there in, in what he's saying to, to hide what he's doing until the last moment when he can do the most damage. So Akish thinks it means himself, that David is really talking about Saul. So uh, what happens here, I think, is that David is trying to intervene to help Israel in this battle. But interestingly, God doesn't let it happen. In God's providence, God doesn't let it happen. Probably to bring about Israel's defeat in judgment of Saul. God wants to judge Saul. And David is seeking to help Israel. That's what we ought to do most of the time, right? But sometimes God says, no, it's time for judgment. And that's what comes. So little typology interlude here. How is this, how is David acting like Jesus here? How is is he acting out the life of Jesus? Uh, Jesus was in the wilderness like David. Jesus was estranged from the leadership of Israel uh, and people were flocking to him. Same thing that happened to Jesus in his earthly ministry was happening to David here. Jesus evaded the Sadducees when they sought to arrest him, just like Saul sought to arrest David that Jesus wouldn't let Israel make him king by force, just like David wouldn't let his men kill Saul. There's all kinds of parallels. It's amazing. Then the Jews turned the son of David over to the Gentiles. The Sanhedrin sends him to uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, just like they exiled David to the Philistines. And they don't know what to do with the faultless one, right? Pilate doesn't know what what to do. And And that's the same with these Philistines. He doesn't suit their agenda at all. They know how to fight a Saul, but David they send away. And finally, the son of David also laments the coming fall of Jerusalem. And I think David, as he's sent away back home here, is lamenting that he couldn't do something to help Israel in this moment. And of course, there you have an opposite, right? As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, lamenting the fall of the, the future fall of the city, he, at that, in that week, is going to redeem the city. And a, a final interesting uh, parallel, again, between Saul and David, to notice. At the end of this text, three times it mentions the morning, right? Rise early in the morning, early in the morning, uh, morning, morning, morning. In the, at the end of the last chapter, remember, Saul went away from the witch at night. And so you have this interesting uh, contrast, it's kind of a literary thing that, that the writer is doing here. You know, uh, After Saul betrays God he goes out at night in secret like Judas on Passover uh, God's, but God's going to bring in a new dawn for Israel and that's going to come with David. So that's part of what's going on and that leads us into the center of the chiasm, David uh, the righteous one. Uh, so part of the question here is who is David? To whom is David loyal? Who does he fight for? Does he fight Yahweh's battles? Is he a man of integrity in that way? Achish declares David blameless, and he he pushes that on his men, the lords of the Philistines. But Saul only reluctantly admits David's innocence, whenever that comes up, right? And that's interesting, because sometimes, this is a lesson for us, sometimes unbelievers... Treat us better than Christians do. And that's what's happening to David here. He's getting treated better by Akish than he is by Saul. Sometimes God uses unbelievers to point out truths about God or to convict us. He speaks through Balaam's donkey, remember? Jonah's sleeping in the boat and the storm comes up. And the captain of the boat has to wake him up and tell him to pray to his God. <laughs> These kind of things happen. But the main contrast in this text is that Akish says the truth. David is righteous. But Saul won't admit that. Now, Akish is doing it very gullibly, right? He doesn't realize David's really against him. But still, in an ironic twist, Akish is telling the truth. <laughs> David fights God's enemies. So Akish declares David blameless three times in this text, uh, just like Pilate did with Jesus. Pilate, three times in John 19, declares Jesus to have no fault. So who's trying to get Jesus killed? Is it the Romans? No, it's the Jews. And they hand him over to the Romans trying to get Pilate to crucify him. Who's trying to get David killed? Is it Achish? No, it's Saul. Achish declares David blameless, but again, he doesn't really know what he's saying. Same with Pilate. He didn't really know what he was saying and who he was saying it to when he said this. It's a striking parallel. Well, you have here, though, the righteousness of David. Even though he was a sinner and he failed, maybe you notice the interesting contrast in the liturgy that we have had in the worship service so far. The Heidelberg Catechism emphasizing that we are filled with sin, inclined toward all evil, Right? And then Psalm 18, David's uh, protest of innocence. And it says, I've I've kept your commandments. There's an interesting tension going on there. We need to remember that that God, in in a sense, both are true, right? We we are still, uh, everything we do is mixed with sin. And yet, when David protests his innocence, he's often doing so in the face of, of lies and people telling him, you deserve death. Uh, and David's saying, I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve that. That's the tension going on there. So uh, while all have sinned, David does sing of his innocence. And he does this again, relative to his enemies and to God's. He does this as he remembers his repentance. He remembers God's forgiveness. When God imputes the righteousness of David's son to us, then Psalm 18 is, is really true of us. That's how God sees us. We've kept his commandments perfectly. Uh, so and that's the center of the text here for us to consider. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus fights against the right things for us. And that's what David sought to do. Who is David? He's the upright anointed king of Israel, able to fight to protect Israel. Who's David's son? He's the faultless king of Israel, able to subdue God's enemies under his feet. So that's the, uh, the Christ center here of this text. So let's uh, take three uh, uh, points here to consider how we apply this to our lives. Uh, point number one, God's presence and his providence is often unstated and, um, what's the word? It's not obvious, it's not overt uh, in our lives. Uh, God, we often go through things and realize uh, after the fact, oh, the Lord was really seeing me through that and we often need to draw that conclusion ourselves and God lets us do that right God doesn't shout with a loud audible voice from heaven and say I'm here it's going to be okay but we learn through the experience that he was there and it was okay and when we learn that in that manner it often sticks more and that, that's what God is doing. God's, God's clear presence to save and to support us it is there. It's here in, in, David, in this chapter for David. Uh, so one helpful thing to do, often on a Lord's Day, I think, is to go over your life. Consider what was stressing you out three or five years ago. And what were you praying for then? And where are you now? Or maybe it's 10 years ago or 20 That's an extremely helpful spiritual exercise. God doesn't always declare his presence in overt, sensational ways, but he wants us to discover it and to see it. So that's number one, God's presence and his providence. It's unstated. And I say all that again because in this text, God's not mentioned. It's not like he's not there providing and rescuing, but he's doing it in a surprising way. That's point number two. God can turn enemies into saviors. God can turn enemies into saviors. That is what he does for David here. The Philistines are his enemies. But in their fighting against each other, and their suspicion of David, that ends up being his rescue. Now, the qualification at the beginning of this point is we have no guarantee that God is going to rescue us from every trouble. Right? That that doesn't always happen. God puts Job in a hard spot for a while. Other times, God lets us wrestle with consequences of bad decisions we make. Those kind of things happen. But God has a thousand ways to rescue us, and he often uses them. And that's what we see here. Many of those ways are unimaginable to us. And so that one commentator I, I like, he said this, God often he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And sometimes he has the enemies prepare the table it was a nice turn of phrase that's what God does for David here it's fascinating it's a story told of a widow who was very very poor uh, and she had some children that and she was uh, struggling to make ends meet and she lived next door to a hostile atheist Uh, he was next door and she he would often mock her for her faith and she was praying out loud one day for food as your groceries were running low, please provide a meal, Lord. And the neighbor happened to be walking by and he decided he would mock her faith. So we went to the store and got a bag of groceries and put them on the front step. And he rang the door and he hid in the bushes. And she opens the door and she sees what it is. And she starts thanking and praising God for answering her prayer. And the neighbor jumps out and says, ah, gotcha. God didn't give you that. I brought it. And the woman says, well, he says, what do you think of your faith now? Hmm. And the woman says, no, you're wrong. God did provide this. He just used the devil to do it. God has surprising ways of providing for his people, even through those who hate him. That's what God's doing here. The third point of application is that God's mercy is not limited by circumstances or sin. God's mercy is not limited uh, by circumstances or sin. Uh, whether David messed up to get involved with the Philistines here or not, that's a big controversy. Uh, if he did or if it was okay or wise, he needed God's mercy in it anyway, and God gave it. Uh, so when we face friends or children who mess up, uh, we often tend to be impatient and unkind, right? Ah, oh, I told you what would happen if you did that. That comes to our, uh, uh, rises up in us very quickly. But no, God is kind. David's cleverness didn't get him out of this. God's mercy did. Uh, God's mercy did it. God turns the Philistine captains against David. He had no way to make that happen. God got it to happen. Only after that does David shrewdly protest, I think. So there is an element of David being wise in here that without God acting first, he was helpless. When we think we can escape trouble uh, by understanding the times, by acting wisely, uh, we forget that God's mercy has to begin the escape, at least. We can understand our culture well, but if God withholds his power to restore that culture, if people don't turn back to him in repentance and faith, then we're just left watching a shipwreck. And when I use that analogy, I don't mean to say that I'm pessimistic about our culture in this moment. I'm actually optimistic in the long run. I'm just making the point that without God's mercy, we're totally helpless and lost. That's what It's by definition mercy. So that sounds pessimistic until you remember where we started and what this text shows. God's mercy is not limited by our circumstances or by our sins. God can put flesh on dry bones that think their hope is lost. He can revive your languishing soul. He can restore cultures that have forsaken God completely. God does all of these things. That's what uh, brought me to Romans 11. I I thought of uh, that uh, text as I considered this point. Uh, Many see those sections of Scripture, Romans 9 to 11, as uh, proof texts for uh, predestination. And we have intricate theological debates about them. And that's, a lot of that is legitimate. But Paul wrote those chapters with a serious existential crisis in mind. Why aren't my fellow Israelites believing in Jesus? What is going on? Why are they rejecting God's plan wholesale? And God often has some of his people turn away from him for a time. That's the point Paul makes there in Romans 9 to 11. And Saul's doing that here in this book, much of Israel, going after following a a, a king who is not following God. And and we see that in our lives. Maybe maybe a denomination takes unbiblical stands, or, or a whole nation or culture turns away from the Lord, or a dear child rebels and leaves, like the prodigal son. And sometimes that leads to their demise, like it does for Saul in the next chapter or two. And sometimes that happens to show God's amazing grace when they return. And that's what Paul expected in Romans 11. The Jews are being disobedient now for a time as the Gentiles come in. And then they'll believe in the end. That's, that's Paul's understanding. Well, uh, to close here, those, those are the three uh, points to, uh, to apply today. God's mercy isn't limited. Uh, no matter how dire things look no matter how uh, much the the guilt and crush of your sins weighs you down God can have mercy and he does often God can turn enemies into saviors God's presence and providence are there even if we don't always see them the last point to, to close is again that David is a type of Jesus David is in the lion's den here right and God rescues him Jesus too was surrounded by God's enemies And in another surprising twist, it wasn't the Philistines or the Romans. It it was Israelite Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. And Jesus wasn't released free like David was. He was put on the cross to redeem Israel. And he then rose and sat down at the Father's right hand on the throne of David. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, giving us another portrait of our Savior. We thank you for uh, showing us a variety of ways in which you provide for and rescue your people uh, throughout the pages of Scripture, uh, throughout the years of our lives. We do continue to pray for wisdom, uh, to know that uh, we are following in your uh, paths uh, when we are put in difficult spots in our culture, in our world, as we increasingly are. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would have mercy on us, that you would grant us wisdom, uh, even shrewdness as David had, uh, to know how we are to live. Uh, and, and we pray that we would continually offer a clear testimony uh, of those to whom we are loyal. We thank you that you have given us a faithful King, Jesus. And we ask uh, all these things in his name. And we turn to Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word. When I invite us to this table, I typically say, all those baptized into the triune God. Why do we need to be baptized to take the Lord's Supper? Well, to put it real familiarly, before you eat, you have to wash up. That's the the rules, the house rules in God's house. When God saves us, he washes us. He makes us his children, his heirs, Titus says. And the washing is the baptism. The heirs sit at this table. In baptism, we are marked as God's covenant people. At the table, the Lord feeds his covenant people. The same requirement existed in the Old Testament. You can find it in Exodus 12, 48. To partake of the Passover, you had to be circumcised. And likewise, to partake of this New Testament Passover, that you must be baptized. This is not meant to keep you from the Lord's table, but to bring you to him in the right way. If you're not baptized but have come to Christ, then we invite you to be baptized and then come to the table. We are the people God has washed and set apart for his son by his spirit. So let's partake remembering his son's sacrifice, his spirit's baptizing us into the body. Let us discern that body into which we are baptized. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.